and welcome to the November edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, and coming up on this show... I'm Clive Roslin. I'll be speaking to Professor Shirley Gilbert about her forthcoming event at JW3, South African Jews and the Israel Apartheid Analogy. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm going to be going to the movies as I speak to Benjamin Till from the UK Jewish Film about this year's online lineup. I'm John Kay, and I'll be speaking to John Carr, OBE, who's written a book that tells the extraordinary tale of his father's escape from the Lodz ghetto back in 1940. I'm Tony Honigberg. I'll be speaking to Yehuda Hecht a Jewish entrepreneur who has been inspired by the COVID-19 outbreak. He's created a new app that helps to record your family's history. And as if all of that isn't enough, our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of Jewish news for the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Labour has suspended its former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, after his reaction to the published report from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission over allegations of anti-Semitism within the party and its handling of the claims. The EHRC found three breaches by Labour of the Equality Act. Political interference in anti-Semitism complaints, failure to provide adequate training to those handling the complaints, and harassment, which included the use of anti-Semitic tropes and suggesting that reports of anti-Semitism were fake or smears. The watchdog confirmed it had found interference from within the leader's office in a third of the 70 cases it looked into during the investigation. It wasn't the contents of the report that led to Mr Corbyn's suspension, but his statement after its publication that the scale of anti-Semitism within Labour had been dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party. The EHRC has warned that despite some recent improvements, the party must do more if it's going to regain the trust of the Jewish community. Labour has until the 10th of December to draft an action plan to implement the recommendations, which include an independent process to handle and determine anti-Semitism complaints. The head of BBC World Service, Jamie Angus, has apologised for a lapse of standards after the corporation broadcast an uncritical interview with a Palestinian terrorist. Alam al-Tamimi was the female mastermind behind the Sabaro pizza restaurant attack in Jerusalem in 2001, in which 15 Israelis were killed. At the time, al-Tamimi expressed disappointment that the death toll wasn't higher. She was given a platform by BBC Arabic TV's trending programme. Mr Anger said the programme didn't follow correct BBC procedures, otherwise the segment would not have been authorised for broadcast. UK travellers to Israel will be required to self-isolate for 14 days under new rules. The UK status has changed to red, along with more than 180 other countries, all facing the requirement. However, Israel has begun to ease its second lockdown, with daycare centres and nurseries being allowed to reopen, along with beaches and parks. And finally, the Holocaust survivor Sir Ben Helfgott, who's 90, has won a Pride of Britain award at the annual televised event which was presented to him by Stephen Fry. Sir Ben was told it was in honour of his quiet determination to ensure that the unspeakable wickedness and evil of the Shoah is never forgotten. The presentation was filmed at the Holocaust Memorial in Hyde Park after the usual glittering dinner ceremony had to be scrapped because of COVID-19. Viv, thank you very much indeed.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. All too often we hear the comparison between Israel with South African apartheid, which most of us will know that's simply not remotely true. But a forthcoming talk for JW3, which will take place online, explores this very subject. The event is called South African Jews and the Israel Apartheid Anology. It will be on Tuesday, the 17th of November, at 7.30pm. The host is our next guest, Professor Shirley Gilbert, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Professor Gilbert, would you give us an insight into your background, just so we can understand why you specialize in this subject? Well, first, hi, Clive, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My background is in modern Jewish history. That's the area I research. And in the last few years, I've turned my focus to look at South African Jews, the experiences of South African Jews, and particularly over the last three years, have been working on a project with a colleague, Professor Deborah Posel at the University of Cape Town, talking with South African Jews, particularly those who identify strongly as Jewish but feel themselves somewhat outside of the communal mainstream to understand their experiences of Jewishness in South Africa and also their engagement with their encounters with the apartheid past and the analogy that's often made between Israel and apartheid. And we were interested in particular to understand how that analogy works in the, the South African context, where it's obviously especially loaded and fraught with historical weight. Where do you think this notion that Israel being compared with South African apartheid actually comes from? Well, I mean, so the first thing I have to say in terms of the way, the way you introduced it in, in your introduction, I mean, certainly for most, if not all, diaspora communities, I would say there is a majority of people who would relate to the analogy in that way and say, well, this is completely absurd, this is completely outrageous. And as an academic, I'm, I'm coming at the subject in an attempt to understand where it's come from, why people use it, perhaps in a less judgmental way, to try and understand, you know, what is it that people are doing with this. It has a long history going back at least to the 1970s when it began to be used by activists, particularly in the international arena at the UN and in other places, um, both to describe Israel's treatment of the Palestinians and also increasingly to call out Israel's relationship with the apartheid government in South Africa, which really began to develop in the mid to late 1970s. It's related to the infamous Zionist equals racism accusation, which was, of course, made by the, general, the UN General Assembly in November 1975 and, and equated Zionism with racism and racial discrimination. Um, so it's connected to that. I would say it only really took off and became a kind of widespread, publicly, often publicly used analogy in the way we're familiar with it today in the 2000s. There was the, the World Conference Against Racism, Racial, Dis Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance that was in Durban in September 2001. And there it famously or infamously exploded. Lots of controversies there about the equation of Zionism with racism. And in the end, actually, both the U.S. and the Israeli delegations 
withdrew, but increasingly Israel is demonized as South Africa's successor state. Now, as I say, as an academic, my interest is less in dismissing the analogy and saying this is why it's wrong. There are fellow academics who've done this in great detail. I would mention, for example, Benjamin Pogrand, who is a very well-known South African journalist now in Israel for many, many years, who's written a book point by point explaining why he thinks the analogy is completely historically unfounded. And there are many others who've done the same thing. And on the other side, others who've explained why they think it is a pertinent analogy. I think more interesting to me as an academic is the reasons why people employ the analogy, what purpose it serves, how it's weaponized, if you like, as a political tool. I think that's often what's much more at play than the actual substance of the historical analogy itself. Tell us how the event will work. What what can people expect to hear and for how long for? So the talk will be in the usual style, I suppose, of these JW3 talks. I'll speak for about 40 or 45 minutes. And I will talk in more detail about the provenance of the analogy, where it came from, when it started to be used, the question of who makes the comparison, who rejects the comparison, why do they make it, why do they reject it, to go through some of those reasons that have been given and and the ways in which it's employed. And then I will engage a bit with the larger question of what does use of the comparison actually achieve. And then I will talk about the impact of the analogy on South African Jews, which is really the substance of my own research. The analogy is, of course, as you suggested in your opening one, that's troubling to all diaspora communities. Although there are Jews who espouse it and and very strongly argue for it, though I would say the majority of of, um, diaspora Jews reject it. And what I'm interested in is the the very particular resonance that the analogy has in South Africa for Jews who grew up with, lived through, witnessed apartheid, and for whom that the analogy carries a lot of baggage because of the relationship that they have with that past. The event is called South African Jews and the Israel Apartheid Analogy. It'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of November at 7.30, and we've been hearing about it from Professor Shirley Gilbert. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. It might not feel like it, but it's that time of year again when we celebrate the best of Jewish films on the silver screen. However, things are going to look a little bit different this year. The UK Jewish Film Festival is set to be entirely online for 2020, but it still promises a great lineup and some access to the best movies around. To tell us a bit more is Benjamin Till from UK Jewish Film, who also happens to be a BAFTA-nominated composer and filmmaker himself. So this this is an obvious question to start with, but how is the festival going to be completely different from previous years? Well, for the first time ever, it's, it's entirely online. And that's for very obvious reasons, reasons which are as sort of sad as they are obvious, which is that, you know, going into cinemas at the moment is permitted, I believe. I mean, the, the laws are changing, the rules are changing almost every day, but, but not the sort of thing that many people feel comfortable at the moment about doing. So 
we had to make some very, very difficult decisions back in, I think, July and August when we decided we were going to put the, the festival entirely online. And as we enter this tier two or whatever that means at the moment, it begins to look like it was a very good decision to, to put Absolutely. the... Absolutely. What special films have we got lined up and are they going to work well in our living rooms? Well, I certainly hope so. And one of the things that we have organised is, is we're running a system to display the films, which mean that people can watch it on their television sets. So they can have a, a, a sort of a semi-cinematic experience. It's not just about sort of watching it in a tiny screen on a computer. But films are no less good this year because we're in the middle of a virus. And, and one of the interesting aspects is that the, the you know obviously these films were made last year made before before the virus happened so actually they're just as great as 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 they always have been for uk jewish film and just as, give us give us a couple of highlights well i think i mean our our main gala film this year so the film that we're really really promoting is is when hitler stole pink rabbit which is a, a gripping and quite touching film, which looks at the Second World War from the eyes of, uh, through the eyes of a young Jewish girl. Her family are attempting to escape Germany. And I think they go via Switzerland, they go via France, and then eventually end up in England. So that's a really, really lovely film. And uh, sort of non-war films. So we got kind of contemporary Israeli stuff and maybe other things as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, the interesting thing about the Israeli films are... The thing about UK Jewish film, of course, is that, that what we want is for all films to have some kind of reference to being Jewish or stories that are, are, are Jewish or central characters that are Jewish. The interesting thing about the Israeli films is that, you know, you can have a film about anything if it comes from Israel because you, you tend to assume that the, most of the people in the film are Jewish. And the joy about the Israeli film industry is that it's, it's very buoyant. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of films coming out. There are a lot of films being made and a lot of very diverse films being made. A lot of female directors, a lot of very interesting female leading ladies as well. And so, yes, the Israeli films, you're very right, are, are films which are, are always interesting to see. And I think, I mean, there's a staggering number of Israeli films this year. I was doing a count up. I think there are 18 Israeli films in the main programme. And our closing night gala is a film called Honey Mood, which is a sort of a, I don't know whether to call it disastrous, but it's a, a couple who've just got married and it, it should be their wedding night. And they end up having a big old row and they go storming off on the streets of Jerusalem and they have this kind of rather curious adventure. And our centerpiece gala is The End of Love, which is a French-Israeli co-production. And that looks at the idea of, of two young people who fall in love, um, an Israeli chap who goes to Paris, falls in love with a, a French woman and, and it's all fantastic and then he has his visa taken away, he has to go back to Israel, he has to communicate to his wife and child through Skype and I think of, of which we all now understand how that feels and, and, and they begin to then question whether or not they really are in love. So... Yeah. It's interesting, actually, that, that these films are being made, which is which is wonderful. I'm actually, I don't, I don't sort of anticipate any problems, but I'm just wondering next year, with the films not being able to be made this year, 
whether we're going whether you're going to be keeping a few back to 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 actually have have next year if, if the impact on the filmmaking business is is long lasting well i think you raise a very very interesting point we hope that films are still being made and films are still being made you know there are various different guidelines in different countries iceland i i happen to know started making films really really quickly actually after after the lockdown was announced so films are still being made one of the things that troubles me specifically is the lack of british jewish films mm. and there are lots and lots of i mean we have quite a number of, of british shorts in our program but for the first time ever we don't have a full length british film why do you think that is well i worry actually that it's because arts funding organizations aren't acknowledging jewish people as a minority you know i think we all have experienced that that issue of of sort of being forced to tick the white other box when we're trying to describe ourselves and i think that is having a negative impact on the number of british films that uh, with jewish themes that are coming out and as a british jewish filmmaker that actually upsets me enormously because i feel that that we have this wealth of stories and and interesting experiences as as a community which really really deserve to be told in film and and i really really want to urge organizations to really start looking into Well, hopefully we'll send them a coffee, send them a coffee interview. So if we want to get involved, we want to watch some films, how do we do it? How do we book and how do we find out what's available? You can go straight to UK Jewish Film, ukjewishfilm.org. And you'll see on the main page that you can click on the 2020 Film Festival and you can look at all the highlights. There are 73 films, which is, is extraordinary, really considering this is an online festival. I mean, you're going to have your work cut out trying to watch all of that. But more excitingly, there's a festival pass. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things that we're, we realise at the moment is that, that people are really struggling financially. And so this festival pass, this enables you to see all but six of the films, so, uh, I don't know, 67 films, for £35. And that's £35 for a household as well. So, you know, if there are two of you, if there are four of you, you all get to watch as many films as you like. Okay, it does say to book um, that the t- tickets are limited, which which actually, although if this confuses me, I mean, I know it doesn't take a lot, but why is it that, any, I mean, can't anybody just watch online? Why are the tickets limited? Well, that's, a, that's another interesting question. A lot of the time you're negotiating things with, with the, the filmmakers. and oh, the, uh, so you've only got a certain number of licences, so to speak. Exactly. Right. Well, uh-huh. <laughs> OK, well, thank you for clearing that up. I, I kept thinking, well, anybody can write in. One thing I would love to say about the festival is that, that it is really, really a fantastically diverse festival. And, you know, we have, we have films from so many different countries in the world. I think there are 10 languages, 16 countries from five continents, and also a huge number of films directed by women. And of the three gala centre 
gala films that we're uh, we're promoting. All three are directed by women, and we have a, a, a best film award, the Dorfman Best Film Award, and four of the six films which are nominated for that award are directed by women. So it's a really, really diverse film festival, and and something that we're really, really proud about. That's excellent, and and very important nowadays. It's the UK Jewish Film Festival 2020. It's on from the 5th to the 19th of November, and we've been hearing about it from Benjamin Till. Thank you very much for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. We've been privileged enough to hear the story of many survivors on this show. Sadly, many of them are no longer with us, but their children are playing a massive part in keeping their stories alive. Well, our next guest has written a book which tells the remarkable story of how his late father managed to flee from the Lodge Ghetto back in 1940. It's called Escape from the Ghetto, and the author is John Carr, OBE, who joins me now. John, perhaps we can start by talking about the Lodge Ghetto itself. You've heard of the Warsaw Ghetto. Tell us about Lodge and what happened there. Okay, so Lodz was the... Poland's second city, about 600,000 inhabitants in 1939. It was often described as the Manchester of Poland, which people thought was a little unfair on Manchester. Essentially, it was a, a textile town. And about a third of the population were Jews, about a third were ethnic Germans, and a third were Poles. The Germans had, had come towards the end of the 19th century when Lodz was the westernmost town of the Russian Empire. So it was a good way for traders in cotton and cloth from Germany to sell their products into, into what was then the Russian Empire. So the Nazis invaded Poland, and in 1940, they got round to creating the Lodge Ghetto and rounding up all the Jews, presumably, and, and keeping them in a particularly confined area. Well, actually, my, my, my dad's family, my, my dad's family were called Hirschmann, and his name was Hein Hirschmann. And they, they lived at the, time, at the time that the Nazis arrived, which was on the 8th of September 1939, they were, they were living in an area called Bauti, which was the main, or one of the main Jewish districts of Lodz. And that subsequently became the core of the ghetto. In fact, the proclamation from the Nazis declaring that Bauti was to be the, the ghetto area came, I think it was in November 1939, but they then started building the fences and the walls to, to turn it into an enclosed area. So what was the situation where your father felt he wanted to break out of that ghetto? Okay, so my dad was in a gang with his little brother, Srulek Hirschman, and his cousin, Avram Hirsch Lefkowitz, who was generally known by his Polish name, which was Henyek. And they figured pretty early on that food was going to be essential to survive in the ghetto. So they hatched a plan to go out into the city of Lodz to steal food or steal stuff that they could bring back into the ghetto and trade for food. And on the day in question... My dad went through first, he went through the wire first, and Strulek came through next, but got caught on the wire and let out a terrible scream, and that attracted the attention of a German guard who went towards, who came to the perimeter, saw Strulek kind of caught on the wire, 
was taking his rifle off his shoulder when my dad, who was already outside the ghetto, remember, saw what was about to happen, approached the guard, stabbed him. <clears throat> the guard fell on the floor. He wasn't dead, but he was a few seconds later when my dad jumped on him with his knife and cut his jugular. They, they then got Strulek off the, the wire. Strulek decided to go back into the ghetto, and he survived for another four years. He died on the, or was murdered, rather, on the 14th of July, 1944, in Helmo. My dad decided he had to make a run for it. So it was completely unplanned. It was completely unanticipated. 13-year-old boy out on his own in a hostile world. I was trying to think, you know, at various points, what I was doing when I was 13. I was probably worrying about my pimples and whether Leeds United were going to do okay that season. And there was this 13-year-old boy, completely alone in a hostile world, having to make his own way. Now, for a 13-year-old to experience that, what about your or his parents at the time? I mean, were they aware of what was happening and what was going on? Absolutely not. He was... This was a venture that the three little boys got together on their own. So that was my dad, Chaim, his brother, Strulek, who was 11, and Henyek Kalefkovitz, who was, who was also 13. Now, if their parents had known what they were planning, they would have stopped them, so they never told them. So when my dad killed the German guard and ran for it, one of the things that weighed on his mind for, for, for the next few years was whether or not the Germans had found out who'd done it and maybe if they had done it, they'd gone and already killed his parents and the rest of his family as a reprisal. So that was one of the bits of guilt and worry that he carried with him. Of course, eventually we found out that the Germans didn't find out who'd, who'd killed the guard. But nevertheless, we also found out at the same time that both of his parents had died in the ghetto in 1941, in fact. So your father couldn't say goodbye to his parents and cheerio, I'm off. No, one of the, one of the titles that I thought about using for the book was no pictures of granny because when he went out that day, all he had was a bag and a knife, right? He'd no, he thought he'd be back home that evening. So he didn't have any mementos. He didn't have any pictures. He had nothing to remember his family by. So I've never seen a picture of my grandma, Hayasura Hirschman. She was born Blumowitz. And I've never seen a picture of any of my aunties or my uncle Shulek who died either in the ghetto or in Auschwitz or Helmo. So where did your father, Henry, actually go at this stage? Where, okay. where did he flee to? What help did he get, if any? Yeah. So the Germans arrived in Lodz on the 8th of September. In the days immediately running up to the 8th of September, a very large number of the Jews went east hoping to reach the Soviet Union and sang in what they thought would be sanctuary. And his big brother, Natan Hirschman, was one of the Jews who went east. Now, the next mitba might sound a bit strange, but eventually, when things had settled down a bit, Natan managed to send a postcard back to his family's address, which was number five, Vavelska, in, in the ghetto, telling them that he was going to visit a relative in a town called Vlodava on the Bug River, which was then the border with the Soviet Union. Now, we had no relatives um, in Vlodava. So this was Natan's way of letting his family know, first of all, that he was still alive. Secondly, that he was planning to reach the Soviet Union and he was planning to cross Vlodava. So when my dad was out, <laughs> found himself outside the ghetto, 
The only person he knew in the world who wasn't back in the ghetto was Natan. So he thought, well, I'll go east and see if I can find Natan in the Soviet Union. It was the only only idea he had in his head at the time. So he went he went to he went to the Bug River at Vlodava, tried to get over. The Russian border guards tried to kill him and everybody else in the column of refugees that was trying to get across. So then he decided to go west. And that's what he did, and he ended up, I think, in Germany and France and then Spain and eventually to Gibraltar. Now, how did he get there, briefly? Yeah, well, he, he spent a little while in Berlin and then in, uh, in Alsace and Lorraine, but eventually he cr- went over the Pyrenees and he fell and was injured and was caught by the Spanish border guards who took him to Miranda de Labro prison. And my dad thought, oh, my God, I've killed a German guard. If they find out who I am and I killed a German in what was then part of Germany, because the, the Germans had incorporated Lodz and that part of Poland in by then, the Spaniards will send me back. And if my family are not already dead, they will be as soon as they find out who I am. So he, he basically spun the Spanish, told them he was a Canadian, and a French-Canadian, because he could speak French. And that when a, a British diplomat from Madrid came to visit the prison, and that they, they came regularly because it, it was a major prison for storing, for keeping people who'd been involved in the Spanish Civil War, he basically fessed up and said, look, I'm a Polish Jew. If you hand me over, <laughs> if you don't help me out here and they find out I'm dead, so mercifully, that British diplomat agreed to play along with the story. He told the Spanish prison authorities he was willing to take responsibility for this Canadian citizen. Canada didn't have separate diplomatic representation at the time. The Brits looked after their interests there. And so that diplomat essentially saved my dad's life and got him out, got him out of jail. Took him to Madrid. And there from Madrid, my dad made his way to Gibraltar. After the war, and as you were growing up, did he actually speak about what happened to you, or did he just keep it quiet? He was completely silent on the subject until I started prodding him to tell me more, and he did. And at first, I thought the stories were a bit fanciful. When my own children were born, I decided I needed to do a roots thing, (laughs) and the third person who was at the perimeter, the ghetto perimeter that day had also survived the war and was living in San Diego in California. And when I found out that he was going to be going back to Poland to Lodz, I decided to make, to go and meet him there. And when I met him in Lodz, in the Jewish offices in, in Lodz, I asked him to tell me what happened at the perimeter. And he told me exactly the same story as my dad had. So I thought, well, this is quite, there's more to this than, than I originally thought. And that's when I began researching the whole journey. Well, the book is called Escape from the Ghetto. It's published by Golden Hair Books. And we've been hearing about it from the author, John Carr OB. John, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. It's a pleasure. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. One thing the COVID-19 outbreak has helped many of us realise is the importance of our family. Plenty of us have a rich family history, but do we truly know what our ancestors have been through? Well, one entrepreneur has used the pandemic to create a new app that will help you to record the stories of our loved ones. It's called Selfie Book, and it's the brainchild of our next guest, Yehuda Hecht. And I'm delighted to say Yehuda joins me now. 
Where did the idea come from? Well, I've always been interested in um, technology, and technology always looks forward. But there are stories that were always forgotten. And my wife, she's a restorer of antique ceramics. She always is interested in very old things. So I was thinking, how can I do something that will help people remember? And technology is available now, so that's what I've done. Do you have a technology background? Oh, yes. I'm involved with the biometrics, which is uh, to do with face detection and things like that, yes. So having the app wasn't such a big issue of, gosh, where do I go from here then? No, I'm, I'm using the same team that I've been working for many, many years in developing different software, yes. You had a quite a fast turnaround. Obviously, the pandemic only started in this country towards the start of this year, yet you've now created the new app. How often were you working on it? Well, I'm, most of the time I have been involved in doing this since we were in a lockdown and we had a very dear family member who died from the corona very early on and we don't know very much about her stories. So I thought maybe there is a way of doing something that in the future people will be able to record their stories the way they see it and the, the way they want it to be remembered. It's amazing, actually, how many of our parents and grandparents, if we knew them, never spoke of their past. Uh, not Certainly not, uh, mine, mine didn't, certainly not to me as children. I did question, and we got lots of answers, but they never willingly opened up. Why do you think that is? Maybe they went through difficult times, or some of the people who went through the Shoah never speak about it. Well, they usually don't speak to their children, but they do speak to their grandchildren about it. So maybe they want to be the things that happened to them or they went through to be known. It, this is just stories that one is telling and it's sort of not told the way really as it happened to them, they, as they think it happened to them. It's like going through some filters. Tell me how the app actually works. Let's say I've got the app on my phone. What is it I would actually have to do? So usually you download it from App Store or from Google Play and you register and then you have to give the name of the author who writes this. It's really an autobiography or a memoir and the name of the book itself. And then it starts asking you questions about your family and you reply and you can upload a photo. And then it asks you questions about where you worked, your education. There are about 250, 260 questions. And you can elaborate as much as you want and you can add stories that you want to add and photographs. So it is really a way of recording the way you want it. And in the end, there is a, well, you, at any stage actually, you can click on a button and it creates an ebook. Now, I have a feeling that hard copy books are going to be things of the past. And uh, I don't think that many of our grandchildren will have many hard copy books in the future. So this ebook can be kept in a storage and it will be there forever. Whereabouts would the book be kept? I mean, have you got servers somewhere that this will be kept on? Well, since every book can be registered with the British Library, for instance it can be registered in the depository in the British Library. How does this 
app then differ from something like, and I don't want to advertise, something like one of the other ancestry things that are out there? Well, this is a free app, so people can do it whenever they want. And it is really the way you want to write your story. It is really an autobiography. It's not really an ancestry. I don't know if there is so much difference or there isn't a difference, but this is an app. And are you solely aiming at the Jewish market or are you aiming at every market? No, everybody. I would like everybody to be able to use it. There isn't any question that it is a Jewish thing. Well, the Jews like to tell their stories maybe a little bit better and more. What are your actual hopes for it? Where do you hope to go with it? Well, I hope everybody who wants to write their story, they can write the story. I'm very lucky. I have three grandchildren in Stanmore and two in California. But my grandchildren see me as their grandfather, an old man. And it is hard for them to grasp that I was once a young person and that I was the grandson of my grandparents. So it is important for me to record my life story and achievements, my relationships, the way I have experienced them. And I'm certain that in due course, my family will value them and will be proud. So like a lot of businesses, this started out from a personal aspect. Yes, yes, no question. How many languages are you going to produce this in? Well, at the moment, it is already up and running in Hebrew and in English. But uh, we will translate it to as many languages as as possible. And people can find this, as we said, there on the App Store and on Google Play. The app is called Selfie Book. Where did you get the title from? Well... I was thinking about selfies, that everybody is now obsessed with selfies. The app is called The Selfie Book, and we've been hearing about it from its creator, Yehuda Hecht. Yehuda, thank you very much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views, and I hope all this goes well for you. Well, if it goes well for me, it goes well for everybody, because it is really a project that I would like it to be a legacy. It's not really, I wasn't thinking about a profit or that kind of thing. I think this would be a legacy of me and it could be a legacy for lots of other people. Thank you very, very much for coming on The Jewish Views and talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the month from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. We are currently reading the book of Boratius, that's Genesis, which takes us from Sukkot right through past Hanukkah into the early new year. It's about the beginning of human history, creation, the flood. But before long, we're talking about the patriarchs, matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah and their lives. These lives, of course, are just examples. They're real people. But their lives, their struggles, their strengths, their weaknesses lie within all of us. And we learn a lot about ourselves when we read their stories. One of the most important things of all, though, is a story that actually begins in the fourth chapter, but is really the the story of all of humanity. And that is the nature of free will. Judaism really is predicated on the notion that human beings have free choice, that we can make moral decisions, Sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes we make the right decision, sometimes the wrong decision. But the decision is ours and the consequences are ours, whether good or bad. 
And this is taught by the story of Cain and Abel, which is, as I said, in the fourth chapter of Beratius, very near the beginning of the story. And Cain and Abel, it's a very, very difficult story, and it's been made into many dramas, films, books. It's a great story that everyone knows, but I think isn't widely understood. You'll recall that Cain and Abel are brothers. They are the sons of Adam and Eve. They each have a job. Abel is a shepherd, and Cain works the ground. He works in agriculture. And there's a dispute apparently about an offering. It seems quite trivial. God likes Abel's offering of a choice sheep and does not like Cain's offering of some produce of the ground. And Cain's very cross with God. And God said, there's nothing to be cross about. And then in perhaps one of the most difficult poetic passages of the Torah, it's not entirely clear what happens next. But read carefully, the text is telling us the following. God says to Cain, there's no reason to be upset. There's no reason to be downcast. We all make mistakes. And in fact, you can't bribe your way out of a situation. Giving offerings might be a nice idea, but ultimately it's human behaviour that defines who we are, what we are and what we can achieve. So whether or not you give a great offering or a less significant offering, ultimately we are creatures and products of our own choices. And the consequences of those choices, whether good or bad, will follow us through life and be there at the end of our lives as well. Yet we have the ability to overcome and win the battle and make good choices. Unfortunately, Kyan misunderstands God's instruction and Kyan thinks, God's telling me there's a negative force and I need to get rid of it. Of course, God meant something internal. But Cain looked outside and he imagined the negative force was Abel, his brother, and got rid of him and then somehow blamed God for the consequences until he realised the terrible mistake he'd made. This story is fascinating and perhaps it's not often read that way, but it teaches us something critical, that all the stories about Imperatius, in fact, the entire Torah, and in fact, the entirety of human history is predicated on the idea that we have the ability to choose to make good decisions, to make choices. And that means the benefit and the success and the personal development that accrue from those choices are always ours. But similarly, when we make bad choices, the mistakes and consequences are ours as well. And it's always something worth thinking about at this time of year as we begin to read the stories once more, that these are the stories of us, of our lives, and the challenges of every human being. It is, in fact, part of the story of humanity, that we have free choice. We have to use it well. When we do, things go well fast. But when we don't, then we are responsible for the consequences. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green United Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, Professor Shirley Gilbert, Benjamin Till, John Carr and Yehuda Hecht. And thank you, of course, goes to you at home for listening. And we certainly mustn't forget to say thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, who as ever has worked tirelessly putting this programme together. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcast application. That way you'll be informed when any new episodes of The Jewish Views become available and you'll be able to listen to all of our previous editions as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. From me, Phil Dave, and from the whole team, including Clive Roslin, Tony Honickberg, Kate Fulton, and John Kay. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>